Rita Irene Ellis grew up in the town of Stevenage in Hertfordshire, about an hour and 20 minutes drive north of central London. Her parents were Charles and Florence, who went by Mary, and Rita was the eldest of their four children. In November of 1967, Rita was 19 years old. Her younger brothers were 17 and 13, and her younger sister Tina was just 10. In a 2020 Hertfordshire Mercury article, Tina, now in her 60s, said Rita was a kind and supportive older sister. Rita had a shy and at times quite anxious personality, and is described as a gentle soul. When in April of 1967 she joined the Women's Royal Air Force, WRAF, the family were pleased as they hoped it would provide Rita with the confidence they perceived she was lacking. Rita entered the RAF as a trade assistant, working in the kitchens, and completed her training at RAF Spitalgate, near Grantham, Lincolnshire. She was transferred to RAF Holton, near Wendover, Buckinghamshire, on June 21st, 1967. This location is about an hour's drive east of her family home in Stevenage, and is a fairly isolated part of the country. Rita's work placement was in the kitchens at Princess Mary's RAF Hospital, which was situated within the confines of RAF Holton. Rita would have been extremely busy, as the hospital was one of the largest managed by the RAF. She lived on base at Building 314, Block 7, in the WRAF accommodation. She would often travel home at weekends to visit her family, and she was especially close with her mum. On the weekend in question, Rita stayed on base. On the evening of Saturday, November 11th, 1967, Rita planned to babysit for Wing Commander Roy Watson and his wife. As was common at this time, the name of this woman was erased from newspaper reports and she was simply referred to as wife. There seems to have been a breakdown in communication or understanding concerning the arrangements. At 7.15pm, RAF apprentice Steve Tank and his girlfriend Liz met Rita at Block 7 where she lived and walked her to the WRAF guardhouse. Rita was under the assumption she would be picked up by Wing Commander Watson at this location. In the 2021 Channel 4 documentary series In the Footsteps of Killers, Season 1, Episode 3, presented by actress Amelia Fox and criminologist David Wilson, Steve Tank says that he never met Rita prior to that evening. Rita was a friend of his new girlfriend, Liz. Steve says that he felt quite nervous being near the WRAF block as camp rules forbade him from consorting with female personnel. As a result, Steve was keen to get away from the women's quarters as soon as he could and at 7.25pm he and Liz left Rita. They asked if she was okay to be left alone as it was a dark night and the weather was cold and foggy. She replied that she would be okay as her lift would be coming along presently. 
Wing Commander Watson left his house at 7.31pm, but did not drive to the guardhouse. Instead, he arrived at Rita's accommodation block and found the young woman was nowhere to be seen. He waited for about 15 minutes, but was unable to go inside the accommodation block to search for Rita, as men were not permitted to enter the building. He drove back to his house, collected his wife, and brought her back so she could go inside and look for Rita. I'm not sure what the couple did with their children during this time. Did they leave them at home or bring them along? Mrs Watson had no luck finding Rita, and the couple returned to their house, presumably annoyed about having to change their plans for the evening. It was discovered at a later date that Mrs Watson had searched box 6 rather than 7, so she had actually been looking in the wrong place. A friend of Rita's, named Sylvie Banks, saw Rita in block 7 at 8pm. Presumably, Rita had tired of waiting by the guardhouse and returned to her room to work out how she was going to get to the wing commander's house. Rita would definitely not want to let her superior officer down. Sylvie stopped to chat with Rita and asked her what she was up to that evening. Rita replied that she was going to babysit. Between 8 and 8.15pm, there was another sighting of Rita near the gymnasium, though there has never been definitive confirmation that this was her. Then, at 8.10pm, there was a sighting of Rita walking towards a red car, being driven by a man. After that, Rita somehow disappeared into the foggy night. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and missing persons cases from all over the world. I'm John, I live in Wales, UK, and I research, write and produce this podcast. New episodes are released every other Monday. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, please see the link in the show notes. For as little as a price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help to ensure these historical and lesser-known cases from around the world are aired and gain exposure. The show notes are also where to find social media details, information about the sources used for each case, and transcripts for all the episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review on your app. They make a real difference, and I love reading them. Finally, you can help others hear about Persons Unknown by sharing and recommending on social media. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to this week's episode. At 10.30 the following morning, a man was walking his dog through a wooded area called Robra Copse on the western edge of the camp. The nearest camp building was about 100 metres away, It was here, at the end of a muddy footpath, 
that the man discovered the body of Rita Ellis. The location was near a former coal yard and 150 metres from the main road which passes the camp. A Catholic church building also stood a short distance from the site. One of the first police officers on the scene was PC Douglas Manderfield. He said Rita was lying on her back and was almost naked. Her clothes were scattered about in the nearby trees. Rita's handbag, towel and nightdress were found nearby. Presumably, she had these items as the babysitting arrangement included staying overnight at the wing commander's home. Fern branches, leaves and twigs had been kicked over the corpse, but no real effort had been made to conceal the body. Rita's parents were told the awful news and were so upset they were unable to travel straight away. They were driven down the next day to formally identify the body. The RAF had their own police force and local Hertfordshire police were also on hand, but almost immediately the call was made to Scotland Yard for assistance. There was a belief from the off that investigators were dealing with a particularly ruthless and violent individual who may very well strike again. Detective Superintendent Victor Evans travelled down from London to take charge of the investigation. He was supported by Detective Chief Superintendent Harry Boker of Buckinghamshire CID. The RAF base had around 2,000 service personnel, including men and women, and over 600 civilian staff. Although over that weekend, 900 service personnel were on leave and off base. During the morning, when the body was found, appeals were made over the camp loudspeaker for anyone who knew Rita or had seen her on Saturday evening to come forward. Around 100 detectives were put on the case, and on Monday, November the 13th, after the morning parade, all staff at the camp were questioned. Inquiries were even carried out at RAF Spitalgate, where Rita had completed her training. Investigators tried to find any boyfriends that Rita may have had, but drew a blank. They questioned a young man who had gone on one date with Rita a couple of weeks previously, but he was soon cleared of any involvement. The early stages of the investigation were almost exclusively focused on people who lived and worked at the RAF camp. It was an impossible task to trace everyone, as RAF Holton was a training hub and apprentices passed through the site regularly and only stayed for a short amount of time. Particular attention was given to any service personnel who were AWOL at the time of the murder or on the following day. As the evening Rita was killed was a Saturday, there were two large events going on, bingo in one hall and a disco in another building. The RAF camp was the centre of social activities in the region, and many local civilians who didn't work at the base attended both events. The number of people in the near vicinity at the time Rita went missing was vast. There were high numbers of individuals to question and alibis to verify. A post-mortem was carried out 
late on the night of Sunday, November 12th, by Professor Keith Simpson at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. There was evidence of sexual assault, including chafing around the genital area. Months later, at the inquest in May 1968, the report from Keith Simpson said that Rita was found Virgo intacta, implying that penetration had not occurred. Forensic expert Professor David Rouse reviewed the medical reports for the Channel 4 documentary In the Footsteps of Killers in 2021 and said this detail may have been added by Keith Simpson at the time to ease the suffering of the family. The 1967 post-mortem determined that Rita had been strangled to death. There was a ligature mark on the front of her neck, and it was determined that Rita's own knickers had been used to strangle her. Re-examining the evidence in 2021, Professor David Rouse concluded that the attack had happened from behind, based on bruising patterns on Rita's knees that had occurred as she fell forward on the ground. There were other bruising patterns which showed that the toes had been dug into the ground when Rita had struggled for her life, again indicating an attack from behind. The original pathologist, Professor Simpson, estimated the time of death to be approximately 9pm on Saturday evening. This was just an hour after Rita was seen by her friend Sylvie Banks in her accommodation block. D.S. Victor Evans's team were desperate to find any sightings of Rita or reports of suspicious incidents between 8 and 9 o'clock on the Saturday night, and they did receive one promising lead. On November 13, 1967, the Daily Mirror reported that a cafe owner who lived near to where Rita's body was found came forward with some potentially significant information. 45-year-old Edward Barnes told police that at 9 o'clock on the evening of Saturday, November 11, he heard a couple arguing near the disused coal yard. The witness heard the woman tell the man to go away. The witness said he didn't hear a scream and he decided not to go and investigate the matter further. Appeals were made in the press for the couple to come forward so police could eliminate them from their inquiries. I have not been able to find out whether this couple were ever traced. In the first week of the investigation, detectives worked on the theory that Rita got into a car and was driven to the location where the body was discovered. Newspaper reports said police were checking light-coloured cars in the area. This was after a witness told of a light-coloured car being spotted near the location where Rita's body was found. At the time, she was believed to have been murdered. At the inquest, it was said that the colour of the car she was seen walking towards at the camp was red, and it was possibly a Ford Cortina. Reading newspaper reports from the time, there seems to be a few theories regarding how and why Rita ended up accepting a lift from someone. There was a thought that Rita may have gotten into the car believing it was Wing Commander Roy Watson. She had never met him before, as the babysitting arrangements had not been made face to face. This would imply that after Wing Commander Watson's no-show at the guardhouse, 
Rita had returned to her accommodation at 8pm, where she was seen by Sylvie Banks. Then she went outside again and waited, hoping her lift would swing by eventually. The killer just happened to be driving past and stopped to offer a lift. Rita got in, assuming it was Wing Commander Watson. She may have even asked whether the driver had come to pick her up for Wing Commander Watson, only realising her mistake when she was in the car. According to criminologist David Wilson, it was common at RAF Holton for women to wait on the side of the road and thumb a lift. Rita may have been worried she was going to miss the babysitting appointment and got into the first car that stopped for her. Friends and family all describe Rita as shy and say she would not have gone with a stranger. This could imply it was someone she knew. Or, on the other hand, there is a chance that Rita feared letting down her superior officer and potentially getting reprimanded and may have felt compelled to accept the first opportunity of a lift even if it was from somebody she didn't know. Another theory was discussed in the Daily Mirror article on November 14th, which suggested Rita could have been engaged in a secret affair with a married man. Police found no evidence of boyfriends, but speculation on this matter was rife. If this were true, it would mean that Rita had deliberately decided to miss the babysitting appointment and opted instead for a secret rendezvous. Or perhaps the man had turned up without telling Rita and forced her to change her plans. Flimsy evidence given for the secret romance theory in the press was that the day before Rita was killed, she had had her hair cut and restyled. Days after Christmas 1967, and less than seven weeks after Rita's murder, there was another attack on a young woman. Detective Chief Superintendent Christopher Rowe of Hertfordshire CID was reported in the Coventry Evening Telegraph on January 2nd, 1968 as saying that the attack had close similarities with the murder of Rita Ellis. However, this time, the woman survived. For the woman's own protection, her identity was not released and she was referred to by the police and the press as Janet X. Janet was 20 years old and originally from Bolton, Lancashire. She was a student nurse at West Hertfordshire Hospital in Hemel Hempstead. On Thursday, December 28, 1967, Janet was walking from a bus stop to visit friends in the village of Tring, just a 10-minute drive northwest of RAF Holton. She was wearing her fair hair with a fringe, and her attire included a zipped short dress and an off-white coat. It was a cold and windy night, and very quiet, with not a soul about. As she walked along the road, she suddenly noticed a man up ahead of her. As she got closer, he turned around, and asked her for the time. At that moment, Janet realised she was in danger and started to run in the opposite direction. The man gave chase, and Janet could see he had a kosh in his hand. A kosh is a heavy bar or stick used as a weapon. The man caught up with Janet and took hold of her. She started to scream, and the man threatened her. 
he forced Janet through a gate into an adjacent field, pushed her to the floor and began ripping her clothes off. Janet managed to get up, but her attacker hit her on the head with the cosh, and she was knocked unconscious. The next thing Janet remembered was coming to, around one and a half hours later. She realised she had been dragged further into the field, but there was no sign of the man. Janet was able to get to her feet and made her way slowly to her friend's house nearby. Within days of her attack, Janet went before journalists to tell her story. She did not want other women to have to go through an assault by this man. She was able to give a detailed description of her attacker. He was 30 to 35 and 5 feet 10 or 178 centimetres with a slim to medium build. He had a gaunt face with eyes she described as being like slits. Around the eyes there was a puffiness. He spoke with a local or southern accent. He had worn a grey or green trilby hat, a white shirt with a maroon or tartan coloured scarf or cravat, and a short, dark overcoat. Throughout the attack, he wore a pair of soft, thin, black leather gloves. He carried with him an orange cylindrical torch, about 10 to 15 centimetres in length. Police added that after the attack, his clothes, particularly the overcoat, would have been heavily bloodstained. A sketch of the suspect was made by a police artist and distributed to the press. Investigators believed Janet's attacker had parked a car near the location of the field. Echoing reports from Rita's murder, a light-coloured car was spotted in the area at the time. Heavy snow hindered the investigation in the first few days, but the sketch of the suspect was distributed across the region to shops, railway stations and church congregations. Hundreds of phone calls came in, and several people who were said to resemble the sketch were suggested to police. Three separate ID parades were carried out, but Janet X was unable to identify any of the men present as her attacker. Following the attack on Janet X, reports in newspapers such as the Buckinghamshire Examiner stated that another attack on a young woman, this time from November 1967, could also be linked to Rita's murder. 26-year-old Anne Simmons worked as a secretary and was attacked a couple of weeks after Rita's murder in the town of Gerrard's Cross, Buckinghamshire. This location is a 20-minute drive south from R.E.F. Holton. The Sunday Mirror investigated further incidents of sexual assaults and attacks on women in the area. On January 7, 1968, they ran an article in which they gave details of around 14 such incidents that had occurred in Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire between August 1965 and the end of 1967. They included the murder of Rita Ellis and the assault on Janet X. I'm not going to describe all of these attacks, but the survivors ranged in age from 14 to 77. Five of the incidents took place in or near the town of Gerrard's Cross. The crimes did not all share the same MO, and it was speculated 
that up to five men could be responsible for the assaults. Publicly, investigators only connected Rita's murder with the attacks on Janet X and Anne Simmons, and even then, there was no clear evidence which made the link definitive. Just to note, there was one other murder in the list of attacks highlighted by the Sunday Mirror. On November 9th, 1966, Dr. Helen Davidson was walking her terrier in Hodgemore Woods near Amersham when she was brutally murdered. The location is a 20-minute drive south of RAF Holton. The 54-year-old GP was beaten over the head with a piece of wood. There was no evidence of a sexual motive or sexual assault, so investigators have never connected this murder to that of Rita Ellis. Dr. Helen Davidson's murder remains unsolved. In 2021, the Channel 4 documentary In the Footsteps of Killers found another survivor of an attack which could be connected to Rita's murder. Certainly at the time, the survivor believed this was the case. The incident took place in February 1968 in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire, a 15-minute car journey from RAF Holton. An unidentified 15-year-old girl had just left a disco and was on her way to post a letter, when a man in his 20s with fair hair and a prominent chin pulled up next to her in a car. The man said he had medical supplies he urgently needed to take to Holton Hospital and asked the girl if she would show him the way. The teenager got into the car and the man drove her to an isolated lane. The girl tried to get out of the car, but couldn't, and the man then started to panic and began strangling her. He yelled at her, You're not going to give me trouble as well. At that moment, the girl realised the man had done this before, and she immediately thought of the murder of Rita Ellis. She decided her best chance of getting out of there alive was to not fight back. She stopped struggling, and the man released his grip. He then pulled her towards him and sexually assaulted her. Following the assault, he drove the girl back to her house. The girl was so terrified she did not report this incident at the time, but did go to the police 12 years later. The inquest into the death of Rita Ellis was held in May 1968. Key information shared was the sighting of Rita walking towards a red car on the night she was killed. There was a statement from a work colleague, Pauline Badger, who said Rita had talked to her just four days before she was killed, saying she thought someone was going to attack her. Please note, I've only found one source that mentions this, so bear that in mind. I haven't been able to uncover any more details about this. The inquest jury heard that altogether... 4,500 people had been interviewed and 5,500 statements had been taken. 8,800 questionnaires had been completed and 2,300 cars had been checked. Police had received 4,000 related telephone calls and 500 letters. All this work, but no named suspect, and the jury decided Rita had been killed by a person unknown. The view of the coroner was that the killer was a psychopath who would strike again. 
pathologist Keith Simpson added that the man was mentally disturbed and had a sexual urge he could not keep in check. In the initial investigation, there were two persons of interest in the case. One was a 49-year-old man with the initials JF who lived in a caravan at a scrap metal yard on the outskirts of the RAF base. Not long after Rita was murdered, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a 17-year-old girl. The other man was an RAF apprentice. He was described as a loner and was known for violent outbursts. He was an amateur boxer and according to a former RAF apprentice interviewed on the Channel 4 documentary In the Footsteps of Killers, this man had once fractured someone's skull during a fight. Any suspicions investigators may have had about either man did not lead to any charges being made in connection with Rita's murder. Wing Commander Watson was obviously interviewed, being the person who was supposed to be picking Rita up on the evening she died. He was ruled out very quickly, as when detectives came to talk with him, he was angry with Rita for not turning up to babysit. He was actually in the process of putting her on report. His change in demeanour when he found out Rita was murdered was such that the investigators believed him to be genuinely shocked of hearing of her death. Eventually, evidence came to light that completely exonerated the wing commander. For decades, the hunt for Rita's killer remained cold. In 2007, to mark the 40th anniversary of Rita's murder, Thames Valley Police, who were now in charge of the investigation, reopened the case and announced a cold case inquiry. Investigators shared the key development that they had a full DNA profile of Rita's killer. I believe the piece of biological evidence was found on Rita's clothing. I assume that it was semen that they found. Police were able to run this profile against many of the men questioned in connection with the case in 1967. Back in the original investigation, forward-thinking officers had taken swabs from many of the men they had spoken to even though this was decades before DNA technology became a tool in solving crimes. Criminologist David Wilson believes swabs were taken as a way to sow doubt into the killer's mind and make him believe that he could be identified through this process. By 2017, the DNA of 200 people had been compared to the profile of the suspect. None of them matched. This included the man who lived at the scrapyard, J.F., and the R.E.F. apprentice, who were the two early persons of interest in the case. Wing Commander Watson was also cleared when his DNA was compared to this profile. Not all the men spoken to had DNA taken at the time of the original investigation, and some names that appear in the case notes have proved untraceable. The profile was also run through the National DNA Database, again with no results. I presume that since then, the profile has been regularly cross-checked with the database. One of the most recent developments in this case happened at the start of 2022. 74-year-old Pauline Badger 
saw an updated suspect sketch of the serial killer Bible John and believed she had seen the face somewhere before. If you remember, Pauline was the woman who Rita reportedly confided in days before her murder that she believed she was going to be attacked. Bible John is the name given to an unidentified serial killer who killed three women over an 18-month period beginning in February 1968, a little over three months after Rita was killed. The women were Patricia Docker, 25, Jemima MacDonald, 32, and Helen Puttock, 29. The killer met all three women at Barrowland Ballroom in Glasgow's East End. Each was beaten and strangled with their own tights or stockings. All three women were menstruating at the time they were murdered. Bible John was given his name after a witness, Helen Puttock's sister, Jeannie, told a story of when she had shared a taxi with Helen and a man believed to be her unknown killer. Jeannie recalls the man quoting the Bible, and he introduced himself as John. Pauline now lived in Dumfriesshire, Scotland, but in November 1967 she had worked as a stewardess at RAF Holton, alongside Rita. While watching the BBC documentary The Hunt for Bible John, an updated image of the suspect was shown including some features not seen in older depictions. Most notably the detail that the suspect had overlapping, crooked front teeth. Pauline believed she had seen this face at RAF Holton. Pauline added that the known victims of Bible John looked very similar to Rita Ellis. They all had brunette hair and wore little makeup. There have been a few theories over the years regarding the identity of Bible John. Some have been disproven, others, like a recent theory that he is alive and well and living in Spain, are more speculative. A popular theory, and one shared by criminologist David Wilson, is that Bible John was the Scottish serial killer Peter Tobin. Peter Tobin died aged 76 in October 2022 while serving three life sentences for the murders of Angelica Cluck, 23, in 2006, Vicky Hamilton, 15, in 1991, and Dinah McNichol, who was 18 when she disappeared, also in 1991. Tobin is suspected of numerous other murders and disappearances, too many to list here. In prison, he is said to have boasted that he was responsible for 48 murders. He has long been associated with being Bible John, though he always denied that fact. Police have never found evidence to say Tobin was Bible John, and the DNA available from the Glasgow murders is said to be of poor quality, prohibiting any attempt to prove a link. Regardless, now is not the time to delve deep into the issue. Whether Tobin is Bible John is irrelevant in the context of Rita Ellis's murder. If Tobin had killed Rita Ellis, then surely a DNA match would have been found through the national database. If the man known as Bible John did kill Rita, then he could not have been Peter Tobin. In 2021, the Channel 4 documentary in the footsteps of killers, 
attempted to gain fresh insight into Rita's case and hoped to do this with the cooperation of the Thames Valley Police. However, they declined to participate in the programme. The documentary went ahead and instead looked to gain new knowledge through the expertise of pathologist Professor David Rouse from Plymouth University. The conclusion of Professor Rouse and co-presenter of the programme, criminologist David Wilson, was that the evidence pointed to the fact that Rita knew her killer. The scenario they pictured was that Rita had first engaged in consensual sexual activity but had then tried to put a stop to this. The man flew into a rage in what Wilson described as five minutes of madness. They draw this conclusion based on the fact that there was little evidence of a struggle. In the pathology report, it denotes slight bruising on the left arm, and there was no markings from the ground soil on Rita's legs. The fact Rita's knickers had been removed, they say, lends to the belief the sexual encounter started consensually. Wilson says far from being a psychopath, the killer was probably a very young man, who essentially panicked. A BBC article from September 2020 and a Guardian report from 2017 also suggest that the killer was young, anywhere from the mid-teens to mid-twenties. David Wilson does not believe the other attacks, most notably on Janet X and the 15-year-old teenager, were perpetrated by Rita's killer. Wilson says that repeat offenders tend to escalate their crimes but if these attacks were carried out by the same person, they would demonstrate the opposite. Janet X was not killed, and the 15-year-old was actually driven back to her home. There is also a different MO. The person who attacked Janet used a weapon, a kosh, suggesting an element of planning, whereas Rita was strangled with her own knickers, which Wilson intimates shows no formal planning they were used simply because they were at hand. I'm sure many of you listening will have questions regarding this opinion. They are probably similar to mine. Just because Rita did not fight back does not mean the sexual activity was consensual. Rita may well have frozen in what was a terrifying situation. The idea that she went to the woods willingly does not seem to fit with what is known about Rita. Would she really have agreed, knowing that neglecting her babysitting duties would get her in trouble? Is it possible Rita was forced to walk from the car to the woods by threats to her life and safety? Like the 15-year-old girl who was attacked in Gerard's Cross, Rita may have simply decided to not fight back, thinking these actions would protect her. Obviously, Professor Rouse and David Wilson are professionals, I know far more about these matters than me, but I have to say I feel a little uneasy about their conclusions. A potential new suspect was brought up in a television documentary. The man was a corporal at RAF Holton. It came to light that rumours had circulated for decades that he was seen with blood on his hands on the night Rita was murdered. The whispers were first openly discussed at a reunion of former RAF apprentices in the late 1980s. The corporal had never been officially reported to police. 
criminologist David Wilson does not think the corporal is a credible suspect, as there is no mention of any blood being present at the crime scene. Speculation about this man is probably hearsay. Due to the armed forces' connection in this case, the full files on this man and Rita's murder are classified and will not be opened until 2070. Therefore, it is unknown if the corporal's DNA has been compared with the DNA profile of Rita's killer. Rita's case remains open, and over the past few years, Peter Beery, head of the major crime review team in Thames Valley Police, has continuously reiterated that the DNA profile is the key to solving the case, but they need names to compare it against. In a BBC article from 2020, Beery says that even if the potential suspect is deceased, they would still want to hear the name, as it was a simple task to swab close family members. If Rita's killer was, as suspected, a young man at the time of this crime, he could very well be still alive, possibly in his early 70s. There is still time and opportunity for justice to be carried out on behalf of Rita Ellis.